0: Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter number 4. Exodus chapter number 4 this morning. Again, let me say what a blessing it is to be here with you today. Exodus chapter number 4, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 1. We have quite a bit of Scripture to read this morning, but we're going to do our best to preach a long time with it. Amen. I know that encourages you. And (laughs) now we'll do our best to mind the Lord this morning, but we do want to use the text and the context. Amen. I've heard men preach and use the text without using the context. and It never turns out well. So we want to use the text and the context this morning. Exodus chapter number 4, verse number 1. The Word of God says that Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me. Now you know where we're at in the Word of God. Moses is speaking with the Lord. The Lord has commissioned him to go into Egypt. Moses has some concerns. He says, They will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again, and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, if they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land. And the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord?' Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, send I pray thee by the hand of, whom, of him whom thou wilt send. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well, and also behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. When he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth. And I will be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, will teach you what ye shall do. He shall be thy spokesman unto the people. He shall be, even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth, and thou shalt be to him instead of God. Thou shalt take this rod in thine hand wherewith thou shalt do signs. And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father in law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said unto Moses in Midian, go return into Egypt for all the men are dead which sought thy life. Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass and he returned to the land of Egypt. Moses took the rod of God in his hand. The Lord said unto Moses, when thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Now thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And it came to pass, by the way, in the end, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, a bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the Mount of God and kissed him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this another opportunity. Lord, so many places that Providence could have took us this morning, but I just want to say how thankful I am to you, Lord, that it brought me to your house, that it brings me amongst your people, Lord, into a place of worship and fellowship and Lord, into a place of Your dealing where You might deal directly with our hearts and our minds through the preached Word of God. I pray that each heart would be touched this morning in the way that would bring You the most glory. And Lord, You know where we're at. You know spiritually where we are. I pray that You'd speak to us, Lord. I pray that You'd deal with us, that we'd hear from heaven, that we'll have know when we've left this place that we met with God and that He had the victory in our lives. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we do love You. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me verse number 24. The Bible says it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him, met Moses, and sought to kill him. This is a puzzling passage of Scripture. If I'm just to be frank and honest, I might as well go ahead. If you're going to go out of the house uh, looking like I do, you might as well not stand on pretense. Somebody say amen to that. We might as well just go ahead and be honest this morning that this is a puzzling, it is a strange passage of Scripture, but we find within it, as we seek to dig and to search and to study and to mine from it what truth we can garner for our lives, that contained within these few passages, at the tail end particularly of this chapter, that there is a great truth for the people of God this morning. Can I remind you that last week we began, I've quit calling things series because I half the time I don't finish them, so it ain't a series, I'm just preaching on the same thing for a little while and we'll see what happens. But we began last week looking at the four separate instances in the Word of God where an inn is spoken of. Now an inn, we would use the familiar terminology today probably, a, a hotel. A lodging place. A place where travelers might find refuge and respite as they're on their journeys. And it's interesting when you think about how often in the human experience you find yourself at hotels or motels or inns or wherever it might be. Anytime you travel. We've gotten any more when we go. It don't matter where we go. We stay overnight halfway in between. Amen. If I'm driving from my house to here, we'll stop off somewhere in halls and get us a hotel. And so we wake up fresh the next day. But when we go on vacation, we've gotten the habit of doing that. And you say, Preacher, why do you do that? Because we've got kids. We can only be in the car with them for so long, or else it's going to be us or them, one of the two. And so we started stopping. Now, you know, it's interesting, as common as this occasion and event is in the human experience, that it is only mentioned four times in the Word of God. There are five separate uh, occasions in which it is denoted, but two of them reside in the same story, and we preached on it last week. So on four separate occasions, God references an inn. We find that each of them are deeply significant. They don't transpire at, at miscellaneous, unimportant times in people's lives. Uh, but most of the time, they seem to be a feature of the narrative that is being told. Uh, the four times that they are mentioned, we talked about them last week, is uh, when Jacob's uh, sons are traveling from Egypt to Canaan. And uh, they stop off at an inn in the midst of their journeys. Uh, Another one, and we'll preach Lord willing about it next week, is when God Himself visits the inn. uh, When He's to be born of a virgin's womb, and the Bible tells us that Joseph and Mary go and they seek lodging in the inn, but there was no room found for them. Then in Luke chapter 10, we're told uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan that whenever this Samaritan takes this wounded and weary uh, and injured man, he takes him to an inn and pays the, uh, the, the lodging for him and pays for medicine. And it's a place of healing for Him. And the other of the four is found in our text this morning. But now, you may say to yourself, well, preacher, that's good and that's interesting and everything, but what does it have to do with me? I believe every time we, all, we preach the Word of God, we ought to strive to ask, what does it have to do with my life? How is it meaningful to me? When I began to think about what an N is and how it functions, you know, when I think about it, it sort of reminds me of the Christian life or the Christian experience in this life, on this side of glory. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you three examples. One, when I think of an inn, I'm reminded that it is a temporal location. Ideally, you don't live at a hotel or a motel. Now, there are some people that circumstances may thrust upon them to do so. But ideally, you don't live there. It's just a place that you visit. You're in between two points. You've left a place, you're getting to a place, and you just got to stop somewhere in between. How many of you know this to be true? That though our salvation is eternal and it is eternally secure, the relationship that we have with Christ now and the dynamic that it exists in is but a passing thing. You say, preacher, how is it passing? Well, Paul said this, that now we see through a glass darkly. But then we'll see face to face. Paul said about this life, our light affliction, which endureth, but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The way that we interact with Christ right now through prayer, through the Word of God, at a, at a, uh, at a, a uh, distance as far as our, our physical location is concerned is but a passing thing. I'm glad to report to you one day. We won't have to pray to Him. We'll just talk to Him. One day, listen, we won't have to look at Him in faith. We'll look at Him with our eyes. Right now we walk by faith and not by sight, but there's coming a day when faith will pass away. And we'll be able to see him face to face. So it's a temporal thing. And then number two, not only is it a temporal location, it is a hopeful location. In other words, when somebody's traveling down the road and they see an inn up ahead, particularly if the journey has been long and weary. And how many of you give me a good hearty amen here that the journey has been long and weary? If the journey is long and weary, there's nothing you look forward to more than seeing the lit up sign of that hotel. Uh, whenever we go down to the beach, a lot of times uh, we don't go to the beach. Sanctified people don't go to the beach. We go to the ocean. When we go to the ocean, um, <laughs> uh, we often where we go is is like in the middle of nowhere. Like to find where we go, you got to get lost and then drive two hours before you find it. And when we're driving down through South Georgia and through the the western panhandle of Florida, man, there's places there ain't nothing. I mean, you can drive for hours and there just there ain't nothing. I mean, there, there's fields and farms and that's it, there ain't nothing. And we've had to learn to strategically plan our, our journey because uh, you can get caught out there, run out of gas, or, or be just left out there sleeping in your car. And what a warm and welcome sight it is when we look and see the hotel that we're headed for. It's a hopeful place you know that at least for the time being, everything's going to be all right. Why is that? Well, one, because it's a place of refuge. When a traveler was traveling at this time in human history, and it is still to some degree true today, they knew that if they found a hotel, they found safety. Living out and staying out and sleeping out on the open road could mean death. It could mean destruction. It could mean danger. And we learned that from the story of the good Samaritan, that that man was traveling and while he was traveling, there were bandits that fell upon him. But when you find the hotel, you found a place of refuge. You know, that sort of reminds me of what we found in Jesus Christ. We found in Him a place of refuge. The Bible says in Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. He is our refuge. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, It's a high tower, And we can run into it and be saved. Amen. It is our Refuge. Number two, it's a place of rest. You go there and uh, the whole purpose in going there is so that you can lay down and sleep and get some rest and regeneration for the next day. And you know the Bible says that about Jesus Christ, for the believer, that He is our rest. The the Hebrews writer said, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And even defines what that rest is, that if a man rests, he ceases from his own labors. Listen, the rest that we have in Christ as a Christian is not a rest of inactivity, but it is a rest of leaning upon His power, His arm, and His strength. In other words, I'm not working my way to heaven because He already paid for my way to heaven. I'm not working for my salvation because He already paid for my... Salvation. I've ceased from my own labor. Does that mean I'm idle? No, listen, I ought to be busy about the Father's business. But it means I'm not laboring for my own benefit, I'm laboring for His benefit. Christ said this in Matthew 11, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He said, I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, He said, and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. So it's a place of rest. And then a hotel's place or an inn is a place of resources. It's a place where you can go and you know that you can get your laundry done, you know you can get food, you know you can get water, you know that you can get everything you need to continue the journey. Man, I'm glad Jesus has everything we need to continue the journey. I tell you, I, I, if I'm be honest, there's been times in these days of late, I thought, man, I, I just don't know. I know He can hold up, but I wonder if I can hold up. But I'm glad to report to you His grace is sufficient. He has everything you need. He is our source of resource and the Bible says and I could quote a lot of verses but I think this one will do. In Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There ain't a single need you've got in your life that Jesus can't meet. He is our place of resource. So it's a temporal location. It's a hopeful location. But then, and I ain't going to preach this because I've got a message to preach, but uh, can I remind you it's an essential location. So what do you mean? Well, if you're going to get from point A to point B, you're going to have to stop by the end. Can I remind you, if we're going to get from point A, where we was born, the lost condition that we were born in, to point B, the place of heaven's home and of, of peace in God and of righteousness in Him, there's only one way you're going to get there. You're going to have to stop by Him. You're going to have to meet Him. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So when I read about this inn in these four occasions, it reminds me of who Jesus is and what He's done for us, and more particularly about the way that we live for Him and love Him and know Him in this Christian life. Now, what does that tell us then when we consider what happened to these people that came by the inn? Well, I would say it this way. We talked about it last week, that when Jacob's sons got to the inn, you know what they found? They found that the price had already been paid. I'm glad to report to you this morning that when you come by Jesus' way, you'll find the price has already been paid. You don't have to work your way to heaven. You don't have to pay your way to heaven. You don't have to baptize your way to heaven. You don't have to promise your way to heaven. He has already paid the price. Then we find in Luke chapter two that when God arrived at the inn, you know what he found? He found that the accommodations were already occupied. We'll spend a little time on it next week, but suffice it to say, when a lot of when, when we come to the Christian life, we find that Jesus is everything that we need. But you know, sadly, when God comes to the Christian life, or the life of a Christian, you know he often finds that there's not enough room for him. Finds that there's other things have crowded him out. When that uh, fella that the Samaritan brought to the end, when he got there, you know what he found? I like this. He found that healing could happen. He found that though you showed up injured and wounded and broken and bereft of health and bereft of happiness, when your life was in tatters and in pieces, if you could just get to the end, the end could set everything right. Can I tell you? Listen, if you can just if you'll bring it to the Lord, He'll set everything right. But in our passage this morning, we've read about Moses. And I'll go ahead and just admit to you, Moses did not have quite as rosy of an experience at the end as some of these other men did. When Moses gets to the end, the Bible says that the Lord met him there. The Bible tells us evidently that the Lord had taken him or had, had uh, arrested him or restrained him because later on it says that God let him go. And the Bible tells us that the Lord sought to kill Moses at the end. When I read this passage, I cannot help but think to myself, Moses is in this circumstance because there's an area of disobedience in his life. And what he found was this, Brother Charlie, when he got to the end, he found out that the perfect Lord demands a pure life. We talked last week and we called it the end of redemption. But I think we could maybe say this morning about the end that he showed up at, that Moses found himself at. This is the end of requirements. Can I tell you, it I remember Lester Olof said years ago, this always stuck with me, he said, it won't cost you anything to get saved, but it'll cost you everything to live saved. And he wasn't talking about losing your salvation. What he was saying is, it don't cost you nothing to become a Christian, but if you want to be truly Christ-like in the way that you live, it's going to cost you something. In fact, it'll cost you everything. Can I tell you this morning, the Christian life comes with some, some requirements. There are some things God expects out of you and I if we are to live in fellowship with Him. Can I remind you that at no point did it say that the Lord sought to throw Moses into the pit of hell. At no point does it say that the Lord sought to condemn Moses to an eternity of suffering. All it says is that God said, Moses, if you ain't going to live right, I'll just take you on home to heaven and I won't let you besmear and besmirch the name of Christ. This morning, I want us to notice a few things with this thought in mind. The Lord has requirements of our life. And when we come to the Christian life, it ought to be expected. There are some things expected. Anywhere you go and anything you do, you ought to expect that there's some things expected of you. And Moses found that there were some things that God required. Number one, I want you to notice this morning, Moses' commission. Now, we began reading at the beginning of this chapter. And part of that was for the greater context. But also, I wanted you to understand that Moses, he ain't just some nobody. He has been commissioned of God for a very distinct, important task and responsibility. Uh, God tells Moses there are some things that He has called him to do. For instance... God had called him to do the works of God. This passage opens with Moses being shown several signs, three signs, the sign of the serpent and the sign of the leprosy and the sign of the blood that he is to take and do in front of the people of God and in front of Pharaoh so that they'll see and know that God means business. His responsibility was to do the works of God. Number two, his responsibility was to declare the Word of God. God says to him, says you're going to go and Moses or Aaron will speak for you, but you're going to be like God to him. You're going to speak on his behalf and you're going to declare to them. You're going to tell them the words. The Lord says in verse 12, I will be thy mouth and will teach thee what thou shalt say. So he's got to declare the word of God. Number three, he is called to display the witness of God. It says down in verse number 16 uh, that uh, God speaking to Moses says, uh, he shall be thy spokesman unto the people and he shall be even... He shall be to thee instead of a mouth, and thou shalt be to him instead of God. Here's what God said to Moses. God said, when you talk to Aaron, it's going to be like I'm talking to Aaron. You're going to be like God to him. I'm not going to speak to Aaron. I'm going to speak to you, Moses, and then you're going to turn around and you're going to speak to him. So that Moses and Aaron, their relationship would be that of Aaron looking at him and seeing him as God. In other words, Moses was the representative of God in Egypt. He was to display the witness of God, And then he was to deliver the will of God. The Bible says down in verse number 21, the Lord said unto Moses, when thou goest to return unto Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. In other words, what Moses was doing was instrumental in the will of God being effectuated in the land of Israel and in the land of Egypt. And You say, preacher, that's good and everything. I appreciate that lesson, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I think if you look a little carefully, it starts to look like what our responsibility is. You know, as a Christian, here's what you're called to do. Do you realize this? Number one, you're called to do the works of God. You're called to carry out the work of God in this world. We are, as one person once said, the hands and feet of our Lord. We are His ambassadors. We are here to reconcile the world unto Himself. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Spirit of God is present in the world to convict and deal with people, but He uses the Word of God to do it. And Paul said it pretty clearly when he said, how shall I hear without a preacher? We're to do the work of God. It's our responsibility. Number two, we're to declare the Word of God to people. It's our responsibility to proclaim to the world the truth of the Word of God. Do you realize that when you got born again, you, you became part of a sacred trust of the Word of God? It's always been through history past the responsibility of God's people to preserve and carry forward God's Word. It's not the job of publishers. It's not the job of culture. It's not the job of politicians. We get real upset because politicians ain't doing our job for us. I'd just be content if they do their job. Somebody say amen. But you know, it's always been the responsibility of the people of God to declare the Word of God. Listen, who's going to share the Word of God if Christians won't? Well, the Muslims going to share it. The Mormons going to share it with their polluted Bible. Or The JW is going to share it. They're not going to share it. Do we expect the Buddhists to preach the Word of God? The reality is it is only the people of God, Christians, Bible-believing Christians, with a Bible in their hand, who can share the truth of the Word of God. You and I lay down on the job. The job's been laid down on it. Nobody can come along and pick it up. It's our responsibility. He was to declare the Word of God. He was to display the witness of God. How many of you know this to be true? Uh, that we are the very ambassadors of Christ. When people look at us, they see a representative of what Christianity should be for ill or for good. You've heard this before, but some of you are the only Bible that some people will ever read. They'll look at your life and decide what a Christian is. They'll look at your measure of faithfulness. They'll look at your measure of purity. They'll look at your measure of devotion and dedication and passion. And they'll say, that is what a Christian is. You've heard these quotes before, but uh, Gandhi once said, "If I I might have been a Christian had I never met one. He made the statement concerning Christianity. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Now, while I'll not be preached at by Gandhi, a man in hell today, I will say this, that it is an indictment against you and I to recognize that this man who, we don't realize it. We live here in America in East Tennessee, but you understand he shaped the lives of a billion people. You understand that he literally shaped the lives of a continent. That man, everything could have been different had a Christian that had been willing to be a fit witness of God entered that man's life. We are vessels for the Master's use. And then it's our responsibility to deliver the will of God in our life and in the life of those over whom we have an influence. I'm a father. I have a wife. I have two sons. And uh, it's my responsibility. They have to make their own choices. But if our house is going to walk and live in the will of God, it's going to be me that has to do it. Uh, mamas out there, you have an influence with your children that not even fathers have. And you have uh, 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 you have their ear in a way that not even their fathers do. And it's your responsibility to live and walk in the will of God in your life and in their life. In other words, I'm saying this, what Moses was called to do, we're called to do. Maybe not in the exact same way, but we are called to the same thing. So we see his commission. But sadly, the story does not end with Moses saying, alright Lord, we'll do this, let's go. Because we see Moses' compromise. Moses let something get in his way. Now we learn throughout the text that the problem was that Moses had not circumcised one of his children. We do not know explicitly which one. Gershom was his oldest son and Eliezer his youngest. And it stands to reason it was probably Eliezer that he had not circumcised. But the Word of God doesn't tell us because we don't need to know. It's not uh, substantive really to what we're saying. Suffice it to say that Moses had one of his sons not in obedience to the covenant that God had instituted. Now stop and think about that for a minute. This man's getting ready to go in and lead the nation of Israel out of bondage. But his own house is not in order. How did he get in that shape? How did he get in that situation? Now I'll admit to you, because the Word of God is scant on some of the things it tells us, we can only make some assumptions. But I think they are fair assumptions. It would appear from the passage that his wife Zipporah, who is a Midianite, doesn't seem to be too hot on the idea of circumcising their children. That would certainly make sense that as his Moses' influence diminished as he lived in the land of Midian, he would not have had the ability or wouldn't have had the will or the desire to fight that battle and force that to be the case. And and certainly it seems as though God reckons it of Zipporah's hand for she's the one that does circumcise their child, but whenever she does, the Bible says she looks at Moses and says, A bloody husband art thou unto me. Now she wasn't British. Somebody say amen to that. Instead, what she was saying is, I'm offended by this. This is disgusting to me. This is unnatural to me. This is I can't believe you put our child through this. Now listen, if Zipporah's is in the house, I'm sorry, honey, maybe I'm misjudging you. It's entirely possible that this was all Moses's desire and none hers, but it certainly seems from the text as though she had offered some resistance to this notion. And you know what I would say? We see, why would he do this? Why would he jeopardize his commission, his calling, his purpose in the work and will of God? Why would he jeopardize it over such a small thing that he could have done? Well, I would say this, number one, because the partner intervened. Or we might say it this way, because of the discord that it required. You know, there's a lot of people that, uh, neglect areas of obedience in their life because they just simply don't want to fight the battle over it. There's been lots of husbands didn't want to, they didn't want to get their home in order because they didn't want to fight the battle over it. Lots of wives didn't want to get their home in order, they didn't want to fight the battle over it. Can I tell you this? There's a difference between keeping the peace and making the peace. There's a lot of peacekeepers, but there's very few peacemakers. The Bible says, uh, blessed are, are the, those that make Peace. It, it, it's it's one thing to keep the peace. It's another thing to make it. Can I say when you neglect obedience to God, you're not making peace. You may keep it in the short term, but sooner or later, discord. Sooner or later, conflict. Sooner or later, dissatisfaction will break out. The best way you can create a happy life for yourself is to live for God, walk with Him, and be sold out 100% to Him. Oftentimes relationships, and by the way, we could go a step beyond just merely the, the marital relationship. We could talk, there's a lot of people won't, uh, in their, in their life and in their home won't hold the standard they should. It might upset their kids, might upset their, uh, spouse, might upset somebody else. There's a lot of times that people, because it might upset friends that they have or coworkers that they have, but whatever it is, can I say this? Your walk with God is more important than your relationship with anybody else. And you're doing no favor to your relationship with anybody else by putting God second. You're only going to poison whatever relationships you have. You know why? Because you can't be the Christian God called you to be unless He's number one in your life. I think that probably He was tempted to because the partner intervening. Number two, I think undoubtedly He was probably uh, hesitant to do this because of the pain it inflicted. Because we might say this, not only the discord that it required, but the discomfort that it required. Moses' son was most certainly older than an infant and possibly even a young man by this time. This would have been a much more painful and traumatic experience for him than it would have been for an infant. Could it be that Moses neglected it because of the pain that it would have caused his son? I've seen this, and you probably have too, when people grow a soft spot. We all love our kids. We ought to cherish our kids. We ought to value our kids. Uh, But sometimes people grow a soft spot for their children and they refuse to uh, instill the things in their kids' lives that it takes for them to grow into being the adult that God would have them to be. I listen, I understand I've never raised a, a teenager. My wife's still raising me, but I've not raised a teenager yet, but I do remember the kind of teenager I was, and I wasn't an easy one. And I know that you can get to a place where it's easier just to let it go. You listen. It's easier to just let it go. Don't want to fight over it all the time. Don't want want the house to be a battlefield all the time. I'll let this one go. I won't die on this hill. You know, the problem is this. A war only has so many battles. And if you seed every hill and every mountain, sooner or later you, you lose the war. It's a painful thing. It certainly is to our flesh to walk with God. And not everybody's going to like it when you live for God. And there's going to be people that are upset. There's going to be people that despise what you're doing. There's going to be people that, that their flesh hates what you're doing. But at the end of the day, we're doing nobody any favors by compromising our relationship with God. Can I say even in your life, uh, even in your walk with God, very often we allow sin to sit undealt with because the relationships involved, other people might be upset. But sometimes we allow it to because it's a painful thing to purge sin from our life. It's not pleasant. Your flesh don't like it. Uh, you want listen. Your if your flesh did, if your flesh did not like it, it wouldn't have been sin in the first place. The whole reason it has got its foothold in your life is because your flesh likes it. It's not going to be easy to get that sin out of your life, but you have to decide who's more important: the Lord or you, the Lord or your sin. So I think probably because of the pain it inflicted. But then I I thought about this. You know, it really didn't even have to be either of those things. It might have been Zipporah was perfectly fine. It might have been every day she woke up and said, Honey, it's today the day you're going to circumcise her son. You need to do that. You need to be obedient to God. And Moses said, No, honey, I'm not going to do it. It could be that the son, if he was old enough to be able to have an opinion, was saying, Dad, I know it will be painful, but if this is what we got to do to obey God, I'll do it. And I don't mind. It could have been none of those things. You know, it could simply have been the procrastination involved. We could say this, the discipline it required. You know, some people live in sin because they just never take the initiative to deal with their sin. They just allow it to live there and dwell there and fester there. And it could have been that Moses just put it off because he had no reason to not put it off. This isn't true of you. You're more spiritual than me, and I know that. But sometimes in my life, I've let things sit just because I didn't have any reason to not. God was patient, long-suffering, and gracious with me, and He did not do to me like He did to Moses here, and so I just sort of let it sit there, because why not? Why would I deal with an uncomfortable truth? Why would I deal with an inconvenient temptation or sin when I can just leave it there and ignore it and pretend like life will go on? We see his compromise in this passage, but thankfully God loved him enough to not let him continue in this case because we see his confrontation. And he said, Preacher, what do you mean? Well the Bible says in verse twenty four, it came to pass by the way in the end that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now it doesn't say that Moses met the Lord says the Lord met Moses. It would seem to suggest that whenever Moses got to the end, he found out that God was sitting there waiting on him. It does not tell us how he sought to kill him, only that he did seek to kill him. Although I would say this, I do believe it was through some physical means. I believe it was through some force. Uh, Some commentators have said, oh, he struck him dead or, you know, gave him a sickness or whatever. But I think the fact that the Bible tells us that the Lord let him go in verse 26, you can't let go of somebody you ain't hanging on to. So I think the Lord seizes Moses and restrains him. What does this suggest to us? Well, it tells us this, that God's not going to let us live in sin without dealing with it. And if we, as a child of God, now if you're lost here today, you can. You can live in sin the rest of your life. It could be God will never say much of anything about it. You'll die in your sins and die and go to hell. You shouldn't live that way. You shouldn't allow that to happen. But I trust on this uh, Sunday morning, probably most folks in the house of God are probably saved people. And I'll tell you this, if you're a child of God, God won't let you live in sin. If you're a child of God, God won't let you live in sin. Sooner or later, He will deal with you. And it might be some open and vile sin. It might be some secret and hidden sin. Or it might just be some sin of omission. Something in your life that you're neglecting and not doing. But irrespective of that, sooner or later, God's going to meet you. God's going to deal with you. What did God do? Well, I noticed, number one, that God seized him. He met him and restrained him. God did whatever it took to get his attention. I would say this, that if there had been a lighter touch that would have gotten Moses' attention, God would have used it. But God did this because evidently unseen behind the, the, the scene and behind the curtain, Moses had been wrestling with God over this because God is always merciful. He defaults to mercy. He doesn't do more than he has to. So when he grabs hold of him, he's doing what it takes. When he looks at Moses and said, Moses, if you don't get this right, I'm going to kill you over it. He was doing that because it was necessary. He was restraining him, preventing him, arresting him. He wouldn't let him be free until that thing was dealt with wonder how God's restraining you and I in our lives. wonder what God's doing to try to get your attention and my attention in our lives. Has God grabbed hold of you? Has He seized you? Has He restrained you? Has He robbed you of your peace, your joy, your freedom, your liberty? I'm not even talking about political or societal. I'm talking about what goes on in your heart this morning. Now, uh, suffice it to say, I believe America ought to look up and pay attention to the message God's sending to her. But I'm talking to you as a Christian today. What's God doing to get your attention? We see that God seized him. Number two, we see that God would have slain him. Now that seems terrifying to us at first, and that's because we have become wrapped up in this life. Uh, We have lost our perspective on eternity. Can I remind you there's something beyond this life? Can I remind you the something beyond this life is of far greater importance than this life? Man said back to this, and I understand what he meant by it, but I thought it was, I thought it was illuminating on the world's perspective on things. Man said, he was talking about all the COVID stuff and he made this statement, he said, you know, he said, this causes death. And then he said this, he said, there's nothing worse than death. Now, and I'm not saying this to minimize any suffering anybody might be going through or might go through, but let me say that as, that's a secular worldview. That's a secular perspective. And I understand he may have been talking about physical illness or whatever. Go ahead and forget I even mentioned it, but use it to understand this truth this morning. For the Christian, there are things worse than death. If we think the worst thing that can happen is for a man to die, then we cannot unriddle what God's doing here. God seems cruel. He seems merciless. He seems malicious. But as a child of God, we understand that there's something beyond death and there's something more important than death. And here's what God was doing. God would have killed Moses if he continued to disobey. Not out of spite or revenge, but out of mercy. If Moses wouldn't obey, then he had forfeit his purpose and calling. And why would God allow him to walk this world of suffering? if he wasn't even doing anything that would glorify God or would bring uh, glory to the name of Christ? Why would he allow him to do that? Of course he would take him home. Now, this is not to say everybody that God takes home, He takes home for these same reasons, but it is to say this, that if a person lives in disobedience long enough, there'll come a point. I still believe this. People don't like to say this this morning, but I'm going to say it because I believe it's true. If a Christian lives out of the will of God long enough, there'll come a point where God in His mercy will take him home. The book of 1 John says this, that there is a sin unto death. John said, "I, I do not say that he should pray for it. If a person refuses to give up their sin, then God eventually will take them on home. Now, that's not to suggest that people don't live with besetting sins, but it is to say that if God makes an issue out of something in your life, if He draws your attention to it, if He perpetually deals with you and deals with you and deals with you, how often do I say this, church? Probably every invitation, I make this statement. If God spoke to you about it, it must have been pretty important. Why would God waste His time or yours by dealing with you, in the service, in the preaching, if it wasn't a serious matter? I see that God would have slain him. But you know, there's a bright note here because you know what God did? God spared him. God could have killed him immediately. But what God does, listen carefully, what God does is not punitive, it is coercive. And we think of that word coercive in a negative connotation. And obviously there are times that it is. But coercive means that you're doing something to try to elicit a response from somebody. Pretty much everything we do is coercive. Some say amen. We we do things to try to elicit a response. When you walked in the door, you looked at somebody and you said, hello, that was coercive. You know why? You wanted them to say hello back. Trying to elicit a response from it. What God's doing here in Moses' life is not punitive. He's not doing this because He hates Moses. He's doing this because He loves Moses and He wants what's best. Listen, God ain't dealing with you because He hates you. God ain't dealing with you because your sin annoys Him. God is dealing with you because your sin is destructive to you. And he loves you, and he wants what's best for your life. so what we find is that God could have smote him down immediately, but God was merciful. You know Paul said it be- or Peter said it best when he said we ought to count the long suffering of god's salvation. We ought to count it salvation. The fact that God hadn't struck us dead in our disobedience ought to tell us that God loves us, and God don 't want to do that. God doesn't want to bring about wrath upon our lives. God wants us to get right and do right. God wants us to live for him. God wants you and I. To live for him. So God spared him. And then I noticed this. God sanctified him. Now before it was all said and done. You know what? That boy left there circumcised. And Moses left there in obedience to God. Uh, God, All this was done with the purpose of sanctifying Moses. Not slaying him. God didn't want him to perish. He wanted him to be perfected. God's trying to sanctify and perfect you and I as well. He's doing this so that He can get our attention. So that we'll live right and do right and be right. And be like Christ. Not because He hates us. Now this is simple, Right? You and I, we teach our kids these truths. I'm not doing this, son, because I hate you. I'm not doing this. I'm not punishing you because I'm mad at you, but because I love you. My daddy used to always say, it hurts me more than it hurts you. And I didn't believe that then. And I don't believe it now. But <laughs> but we always tell him that. We're doing this because we love you. But how soon we forget that our Heavenly Father feels that way too. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chased. Him. He chased. Him. So we see his... His conflict, his confrontation here. And then notice his compliance. I'll say a word about this and be done. So what happened? Well, the Bible tells us that Zipporah goes and grabs her son, grabs a sharp stone, circumcises him, and then uh, throws it at, at Moses' feet and says, A bloody husband, art thou unto me? And then the Bible tells us in verse 27, almost unceremoniously, the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God. And kissed him. Isn't that an interesting way for that whole story to end? I don't know about you, but if somebody was telling me that story, if we were sitting there and Stephen was saying, man, listen, I, I went down to Holiday Inn and God was there. And God took me and, 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 he, and, and he, he seized me and He would have killed me, would have slain me if I hadn't yielded Him and, and been obedient to Him. And I said, yeah, what happened? He said, well, nothing, we just went on. What a strange way for this narrative to end. But you know, there's more going on behind the scenes. What was it that took place? Well, notice there were three parts to his compliance. Number one, we see the rectifying of the transgression. The son had to be circumcised. It wasn't good enough just for Moses to say, I'm sorry, Lord, and go on living in his disobedience. It wasn't enough for Moses to simply say, Lord, if I have another son, I promise you I'll circumcise him. But go on this disobedience. The thing that had been done had to be undone. The disobedience had to be dealt with. It had to be rectified. How often do we come to God and say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I did that, but we don't ever deal with what we've done. We don't ever make it right. We don't ever set it right. We talk about repentance. I believe in repentance. I trust you do too. It's a Bible principle. And part of repentance in the life of the believer, particularly so, is to set things in order when they've been out of order. If you've been living in disobedience, you've got to get that disobedience corrected. So we see the rectifying of the transgression, number two, and this isn't even mentioned in the text, it's mentioned elsewhere, but we see the removing of the temptation. Now, and again, I don't want to be too hard on Zipporah here. Moses should have had his house in order. But evidently, if we follow the train of thought that Zipporah was an influencing factor here in restraining him from obeying God, you know what we find elsewhere? In Exodus chapter 18, whenever Jethro comes back to Moses, after Moses has been in the wilderness for a season, the Bible says then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. doesn't say it in our text in Exodus 4, but it tells us later on that evidently after this episode, uh, Moses put Zipporah and those two boys right back on the donkey that carried him there and sent him right back to Midian. Why did he do that? Did he do that because he was cruel? No. I think he understood this, that he had a soft spot for his wife and his kids. He understood his own weakness. He understood that Zipporah evidently was not bought in on what God was doing in their life and that she would only be a stumbling block. Now listen, we need to be cautious here. I don't think this is marriage advice. Somebody say amen. But I do think it's spiritual advice. You've got to rectify the transgression, but you know what you need to do after that? You need to remove the temptation. It's no wonder some of us struggle with sin because we don't change anything about our life when we get right with God. The very things that tempted us before, we don't do anything to try to remove those things from our life. We somehow believe that we've miraculously grown strong enough to resist that temptation, though provably, time and time again, we have shown that we are not. You want a better chance of walking close and clean to God? Uh, Paul said it this way, give no occasion to the flesh. Give no occasion to the flesh. Don't give the flesh an opportunity. I remember my mother telling me one time, she was having a conversation with my grandmother, her mother, and uh, when she was a teenager, and she made the comment to, to her mom, said, don't you trust me? My grandmother looked at her and said, no, I don't trust you. I don't trust any teenager. And you can't even trust yourself. Well, she's wiser than most of us, wasn't she? You say, don't you trust yourself? No, I don't trust myself. Why should I? Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Don't trust yourself. You can't trust yourself. Remove the temptation. Remove the occasion of the flesh. And then you know what we find? And this is why I read all the way to verse 27. The Bible says after this that God looks at Aaron and says, Aaron, I want you to go and meet Moses. And they go and meet the Mount of God. Can I say a very simple thing about that? It tells me Moses went on. We see the resuming of the task. I'm glad failure don't have to be final. You and I may mess up, and undoubtedly we will mess up. We'll live in disobedience and we'll, we'll disobey God and, and transgress God's Word and, and God's commands. But that doesn't have to be fine. It doesn't have to be chronic. It doesn't have to be our continual condition. And it don't have to be terminal. We all make mistakes, but listen, God dealing with you this morning ought to tell you that He ain't done with you. If He's done with you, you won't be sitting here this morning. He's dealing with you because He's not done with you. Not because he hates you, not because he loathes you, not because he's annoyed with you. He's dealing with you because he loves you. Because he's got a plan for your life. Moses went on to be mightily used of God. And you know, this little bit of disobedience in Moses' life? The Holy Ghost made it so obscure that very few people even know it's in the Word of God. I'm not, my preacher used to say this all the time. Every time he'd preach a message, he'd say, I've never heard anybody preach on this. And one day my father-in-law said, you know why he says that, right? I said, why? He said, because he don't ever hear anybody preach but himself. Because he's a preacher. So, understanding the blind spot that us preachers have. I've never heard a message on this. And it's not because there's not a truth in it. You know why? It's something we just passive. Isn't God good? God could have wrote six chapters on this, Charlie. Instead, He gave us about three, four verses. As a warning, but listen not as an albatross around Moses' neck. I'm glad, though we may disobey God. If we'll get it right, we don't have to let that define us. We can go on and God can use us. What we find at the end is that there are some requirements. And I wonder if you and I are obedient to God in the requirements He's put on our life. Let's bow together this morning. A musician's going to come and play. and You know the altar's open. You don't have to wait for the first note. You can come meet with the Lord even in this very moment. Father, I pray that You'd bless this invitation. I pray that Your people would do serious business with You, Lord. I pray that there would not be a heart that's been stirred that is not dealt with. Lord, that they would yield to You. That they would, Father, allow You to have the victory in their life. And we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You. We ask it in Jesus' name.